Stand by for the hook. Welcome to The Hook with Katie Kempner, Vice President of Agency Communications at Crispin Porter and Boguski, the most awarded advertising agency in the world. Every Tuesday at the intersection of advertising and PR, The Hook, where Katie talks with advertising visionaries, top journalists, cutting-edge creatives, authors, and PR gurus. Hear what these industry insiders have to say about the changing landscape of advertising and PR today. Now here's your host, Katie Kempner. Hello, I'm Katie Kempner. Today is Tuesday, October 21st, and you are listening to The Hook, where each week I talk to advertising, branding, and public relations insiders who are both leading and covering the industry. My hope is that by listening to my guests, you will find inspiration and new ideas, and of course, have some fun along the way. We'll be back right after this. Sit tight and don't move. The Hook will be back after this short break. How do you choose the right affiliate network to partner with? The answer is simple. MarketHealth.com, where health and wealth connect. Established in 1998 and formerly known as Joe Bucks, the MarketHealth.com affiliate network allows you to market and promote the world's leading health and beauty offers on the net. Start making recurring income and the highest payouts in our industry. Choose from over 50 of the hottest selling offers, ranging from herbal supplements, skincare, vitamins, beauty products, weight loss, and much more. Sign up for free at MarketHealth.com and start making money today. Susan, you're still responsible for digital marketing programs, right? Right. So your team is responsible for email marketing, web analytics, PPC campaign optimization, and scheduling? Your point? Why are you so relaxed? My team deals with five different solutions, tech support teams, and just as many invoices, and it's making us mental. What is it? Aromatherapy? Acupuncture? Why are you so relaxed? You just have to simplify your tool set and unify your team. Lyris provides totally integrated email marketing, web analytics, PPC campaign management, and calendaring functionality. It's all in one spot that provides a holistic view of all your team's efforts. And you get all of this functionality for $299 a month. So with Lyris, one company can do it all. I feel like I can cancel that acupuncture appointment already. To see how Lyris can simplify your life, visit Lyris.com or call 1-888-GO-LIRIS. Simplify, unify, and increase ROI with Lyris today. The frequency for nightmares. WebmasterRadio.fm <laughs> Now back to The Hook. The intersection of advertising and PR. Only on webmasterradio.fm. Now, here's your host. Today I'm truly excited to welcome back my friend Rob Walker. Rob writes the weekly column, Consumed, a blend of business journalism and cultural anthropology for the New York Times Magazine. Previously, he created and wrote the popular Ad Report Card column for Slate, and he's contributed to a wide range of publications from Fast Company and Fortune to The New Republic and Adbusters. He continues to write about the secret dialogue between what we buy and who we are at his own website, marketing.com. He lives in Savannah, Georgia with his wife, photographer Ellen Susan. Hi, Rob. How are you? Hey, Katie. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How's Savannah? Uh, it's a beautiful day here, actually, so uh, not bad, not bad. I have to ask you, I know I ask you every time, have you seen Paula Dean yet? 
<laughs> no, we haven't seen Paula Deen. We did eat at her restaurant, I think, since last time I spoke to you, and it was actually it was actually uh, pretty good. Was it very buttery? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing but you know, it's butter fried with bourbon all over it. That's basically the. Uh... <laughs> how could and how could that taste bad? Really, I mean, <laughs> no, it's very good. It's excellent. It's excellent. Well, since we last talked, prior to you. Um, Dining at Paula Deen's restaurant, you wrote a book, and uh, it's called Buying In, The Secret Dialogue Between What We Buy and Who We Are. It's been getting amazing reviews. Could, could we just sort of jump right in and talk a little bit about the book? Yes. So what, what led you to write it? Is, it? is it simply an extension of Consumed, or tell me how it sort of came to be and what's it about? Well, it's an extension of, um, or it's, you know, it's the same basic subject matter in some ways as consumed, but I wouldn't call it an extension. It's sort of, you know, I mean, I write about in that column is about consumer behavior and consumer culture. And um, as you mentioned in your very nice uh, introduction there, I've been writing about advertising and marketing in one way or another for for a while now, for since since about 2000. And over the course of that time, you know, when I started out doing it, I was I was just writing ad reviews and always writing from a consumer point of view, and and was kind of learning about the industry side as I as I as I went along. And uh, clearly, it was a time of a lot of a lot of big change in terms of uh, how media was functioning and how the advertising business was uh, functioning. And there were a lot, and, and technology uh, clearly changed a lot <laughs> since 2000. So there was sort of a, a, a big narrative out there of the nature of what had changed that I was not, I, that I didn't think was the whole story because there was a sort of narrative that, well, what has changed is that the consumer, you know, you've heard this sort of cliche of the consumer's in control and they can zap past 30 second ads. And so there's this kind of new, unprecedented. Uh, power on the consumer side, kind of climaxing in Time Magazine, naming you the person of the year in uh, 2006. And so along the way, I I was sort of thinking that there was another side of the story to be told, uh, which was how how the marketing business, the advertising business had adjusted to these changes, because I don't think that that the the business just sort of sat there and, and said, oh, well, 30-second ads are in trouble, so let's call all our clients and just say, you know, forget it. The game is all over now, and we're not going to be doing this anymore. (laughs) They came up with new solutions, you know, new ways of getting brands around. And I thought there was an interesting story to be told about that and what that meant for consumers and, um, and, uh, and how things have been changing from a different, from a sort of consumer point of view, and how things might change kind of going forward. It was kind of an effort to pull back the curtain, and it's a consumer behavior book as much as a marketing, uh, as much as a book about the marketing business. But, um, but that, was, uh, that was the goal, and that's why I decided, and that's something that was sort of too big to, to tackle in a column. I felt like it had to happen in the context of a book, so that's why I did it. And there's a lot of interesting case studies that are on a lot of different companies that you touch upon, and maybe we could just start right off the bat with one that is always uh, controversial. Uh, I mean, I'm jumping forward, but I think we should just go through some of them if it's cool with you. Uh, American Apparel. You talk about uh, Dove Charney. Is that how you say his last name, Charney? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know know him. And can, Can we talk a little bit about that brand and maybe a few other brands, you know, what sort of using it as an example with the consumer? Yeah. 
I mean, I, I think that what I wanted to do, and you're right that that sort of comes toward the, uh, in, in sort of the last section of the book where I'm, um, uh, you know, at that point in the book, I talk about, you mentioned that the website is called marketing.com, and marketing is this sort of idea that runs through the book, and it's, a, it's, it's, it's my shorthand for the, 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 the way that marketing has changed broadly. It's gotten more sort of murky, the, the, the part of the, res- the, the broad response to the uh, declining power of the 30-second ad has been uh, more murky forms of advertising, ranging from, you know, word of mouth and viral stuff and all, all, that, all that good stuff that we, that we uh, uh, know all about. Um, but uh, where I was going toward the end, I, I sort of try to end by talking about, you know, different um, uh, stories that you can look at to try to take away some sort of, I don't want to say lesson, but, but, but so something close to that. And, and the, the American Apparel chapter was kind of the closest I come to addressing the business community directly because... Right. One of the reasons that American Apparel is so controversial with a lot of people, uh, putting aside for the moment, I'll I'll talk about it if you want to, but putting aside for the moment the the Dove's actual personality, which a lot of people just find really off-putting for a number of reasons, um, is is in fact their advertising, because their advertising is often sort of, you know, uh, sort of uh, debaucherous, you know, young girls, in these sort of quasi soft porn images, right? And it's been very, um, uh, it's widely recognized that people know those ads and talk about those ads, and some people really hate those ads. But the interesting thing to me about those ads <clears throat> is that when American Apparel, of course, they're based in Los Angeles, and their original kind of message when they were going out to the consumer market uh, five years ago now, probably, was tied very much to the sort of sweatshop-free thing because they have a factory in Los Angeles. They pay their workers uh, pretty good wages, probably the best wages in the Los Angeles garment industry, Um, certainly well above what um, any third-world manufacturing um, employee would be getting. And that was kind of their message, you know. It was sort of an ethical consumption message. And Dove, when I first met him, uh, they were in the process of moving away from that and moving toward this sort of more sex-soaked uh, youth image. And he was pretty blunt about it. He was, he, his point of view was, look, you can't um, succeed as a business simply by appealing to people's better nature, by appealing to their mercy, as he was putting it. You have to appeal to their self-interest. So we want to have an image that's very young, very sexy, and very um, exciting and very appealing. And um, uh, I think that at the end of the day, they have sold much more uh, (laughs) than they ever would have Mm -hmm. by just going with the ethical message. But the really important thing is that, you know, usually when you see this kind of a shift happen, it's like, well, we're not really selling this uh, ethical no sweatshop thing anymore, so forget it. Let's just go ahead and offshore everything and just do what everybody else does. They didn't do that. They, they, in terms of their actual business practice, they actually pay their workers better now and give them more benefits, and they're sort of more of a sweatshop-free uh, business than they ever were in the beginning. And I think that there's a great message in that, that sometimes, um, that sometimes it's a, a powerful thing 
to uh, stick to your guns on your on if you if you want it because so much of what we see right now in terms of trying to reach the so-called ethical consumer just a, a, a amounts to well let's just change our messaging uh, to to attract those people and not worry so much about changes in the business and American Apparel did exactly the opposite they have a very um, you know, on this issue of if, if 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 that's an issue that's concerned to you, labor standards, they're pretty good. Um, it's not the centerpiece of their marketing, though, and it's uh, worked pretty pretty well for them. Well, you talk about, I mean, you talk about in your book that the the four and a half rational factors in any given consumer decision: price, quality, convenience, and pleasure, and the half a factor: ethics. I mean, do you really think that that's such a Especially now, I wonder, and, and I don't know if it even really follows, but, you know, like the greening of everything and, you know, buying this because it's more ethical and mm-hmm. it's more safe to the environment. How much does that play into that? Well, I think that the way that a lot of big companies have responded to the sort of rise of, of, of apparent interest in that on the part of consumers is to start, you know, they'll sort of say, well, we make, um, you know, we make this widget. And there's no particularly compelling story. There's no green story to tell about it. So let's start a sub-brand of the widget, the new green widget, the new eco widget. And it'll have a special label with like a tree on it or something like that. And we'll sell to that. And we'll mark it up. And we'll sell it to that little percentage of the population that really is concerned about this stuff. And, um, and then that's it. And nothing really changes. There's no real sort of fundamental, you know, underlying business practice change going on. The same problems are, are still there. Now, there's a point of view that, well, over time, as this um, sort of ethical uh, consumption interest, you know, increases, that it'll win in the marketplace, that eventually they'll have to change their original widget because um, consumers simply demand, you know, the greenest of widgets. and that. But I don't know that, I mean, I think that if that is, you know, and you can see this sort of applied in fair trade or in, you know, carbon footprints, all, all kinds of areas. But what it's really, as far as I can tell, is resulted in just a flooding of the marketplace of ideas, of, of images. If you go to the grocery store now, pretty, it seems like every other product is promising you they've taken whatever is the most sort of appealing aspect, ethically appealing aspect of their product, and they're sort of touting that, whether it's, you know, low carbon footprint or low fat, you know, <laughs> just yeah. anything. Um, and I think that the consumer ends up like it just it ends up being kind of numbing. So in the long run, I don't know how how it works in the marketplace, and I don't think that it's leading to real uh, to real change. I just think that it's leading to a lot of more confusing images. Uh, and that was that was the to the extent that I have a point of view that I'm trying to get across to, to businesses. That that's it. So how do you think, I mean, you wrote this book over time, and now the economy is in this crazy, crazy spiral. But how is the current state of the economy, economy impacting the buying-in culture that you're, you're talking about, or, or is it? Well, I mean, here's the interesting thing is that I, I say in the subsequent chapters to the American Empire, when I sort of move on from business talking to individuals and about society and stuff like that, uh, you know, I think that we have, as Americans, this, this sort of this dual-track mind on this thing. On the one hand, you'll kind of ask people, like, are we too materialistic? And they'll say, yes, we're too materialistic. And then on the other hand, you sort of say, what about you? 
are you affected by advertising and stuff and, and, and that kind of thing? No, not me. You know, I see, I see past all that stuff. It doesn't have any impact on me. And, uh, and besides, you know, and, and I'm not one of these people who's caught up in material culture. It's not, doesn't dominate my life the way it does other people. And it's not that important. It's all sort of trivial and, and, um, it's, it's not the most important thing. But I think that what we've been learning even before this, uh, economic gloom, uh, descended upon us is that our consumer decisions really do matter. They matter quite a bit. You know, when we were, whether whether your issue is global warming or labor or anything else, your decisions in the marketplace as a consumer really matter. And if you're going to make the right decisions, probably it's going to require a little bit deeper thought than just these sort of knee-jerk reactions of oh, I see through it all and branding doesn't affect me and I don't care about logos. Like you're probably going, for reasons having to do both with the way the mind operates and with, and with frankly, the way that marketing has changed, that where because things have gotten murkier, it is harder to make the decisions that you, you want to make. It does take a little bit more um, effort. And so it's possible that this, Situation of people having to kind of tighten their belts and make and make decisions more thoughtfully will be helpful um, in a perverse uh, uh, way. We'll see. I mean, it, if people just sort of react to this economy by saying, "Well, you know, the environment's nice, but I'm just going to buy the cheapest brand of, you know, what whatever window cleaner or something like that. I don't care what the impact is because I don't have that much money." then obviously that's unfortunate. If they sort of think harder about, well, what are the things that are important? I kind of cite Michael Pollan's advice in his uh, 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 manifesto about food where he says, you know, part, part of his advice is, um, yes, you're going to have to spend more maybe to get better food, but, you know, many of us could do well by eating a little less. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no one really wants to hear that message, not in the world of food, and they don't want to hear it in the world of consumption. They don't want to hear about, well, you know, buy fewer things but make them count more. But at the end of the yeah. day, I think that that's um, uh, 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 not a bad message. If you really think about, I mean, look in your closet at all the junk that you bought that uh, seemed meaningful at the time and doesn't mean anything now, and then think about the stuff that you would really take with you if the hurricane was coming. And, um, you know, it really has this sort of powerful effect of, yes, their material culture means something, but often those meanings really come more from us than from, um, than from whatever marketing we were reacting to that made us uh, uh, pull the trigger on, on a purchase decision in the first place. So that really opens up a discussion, and that this would be jumping back to the beginning of your book about yeah. the, di- the dialogue that that companies need to have with consumers. You, you started, and maybe this isn't the right place for this example, but you started the book talking about um, Miami and, and Red Bull and a, and a dialogue that they sort of um, develop with consumers. Maybe could we just talk a little bit about, you know, dialogues with consumers overall and how they've become more and more important? Yeah, well, the Red Bull example is a good way to get into it in the sense that, um, you know, Red Bull is kind of the er example in some ways of 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 a, of a mass brand being built during this period. And I, I, I really I want it's central to the to the book in some ways because um, I was really wanting to have an example in there of we're supposedly in the post mass era and all that. And um, here's a, here's a brand that that you know in 2000 almost no one in America knew about, and now in 2008 
you know, over the course of this media fracture and all this blah, 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 it's become something that is universally known. I mean, there's, you know, it's at your 7-Eleven, there's stacks of it at Kroger and all that kind of stuff. Back when I was um, first looking into it, you know, they were coming into the American market and they didn't do the traditional thing that you're supposed to do when you come into a new market, which is kind of announce yourself, you know, whether you're announcing yourself in a 30-second ad or or whatever, they, they not only did they not do traditional media things, they didn't, they didn't, they never explained what it was. You know, we forget mm. now that energy drinks didn't even exist at the time in the United States in the U.S. market. Like there, and instead of kind of explaining, well, look, here's the deal. All really, the whole pitch boiled down to on the can it says with taurine, you know, and no one knew what taurine was. <laughs> and the dialogue became consumers kind of inventing these different reasons for why this stuff was good, you know, and who was supposed to drink it and what taurine was. There are all kinds of, and this goes from all the wild rumors about taurine itself, uh, which I'm sure you have heard that, you know, it's bull semen and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, just, and the company would just sort of let those, let those go and didn't, you know, just sort of laugh them off. But But also, more importantly, the way that they the way that they marketed or marketed it was through a lot of small targeted events, um, which we've seen a lot of now. But I, I think the most interesting thing was that the, it, they weren't just sort of like saying, okay, here are the influencers, and then it will spread mm-hmm. out. They were targeting all kinds of different influencers, if you will. There were sort of people in the um, you know, extreme sports world, but also kind of nightclub people, and then they were handing them out outside of offices and college students, and 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 every group seemed to adopt it, and they kind of I call it the murkiest common denominator strategy, where each group thought it was for them, and it's very rare to see a product that you know today, if you look around. You can buy it at a gym, you can buy it in a nightclub, you can buy it at 7-Eleven, mm-hmm. and you can buy it at Kroger. And that's pretty rare. That's pretty mass. <laughs> yeah. And it's partly, I think, specifically because of this, if you want to call it like dialogue, this, this situation where they let the consumer fill in the blank as to who this was for and, and, what, it, and what it did. Now, just for the record, I never heard that it was bullshit. <laughs> what is it, actually? Do you know what it is? Bull blood. It's uh, it's an amino acid that is uh, produced naturally in human and animal bile, and um, scientists have looked into what uh, you know does it have any sort of performance effect? And there's never been any um, there's never been any independent research to to indicate that it has, that it has any any um, impact whatsoever. But you'll notice that it's. Um, there's a good comment from someone at Coca-Cola Company once about this, saying that you know, because it's in every energy drink now, taurine. Yeah. And someone at Coca-Cola said, "Well, we, look, we make no claims for it. The consumer just demands that it be included among the ingredients." So. And there's their dialogue. But let's let's yeah. talk about marketing.com because now you've used you've you've delved into it ever so slightly. You've touched the surface, not delved into it. Uh, mer- tell, tell me marketing.com and what that is. Well, marketing.com, you mean my site? <laughs> it's, uh, your site? You know, well, your, it's, your, your theory and your site. Tell yeah, me. well, I mean, the theory is Bob. basically just, um, is, uh, like I said, I made up the word years ago, uh, um, and, and originally it was kind of a joke that uh, because I was sort of making fun of the way that every marketing guru has to have their own um, little catchphrase. 
but the joke turned out to be on me because um, <laughs> it sort of, be, you know, became, it worked. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so I sort of just stuck with it. Uh, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a conflation of murky and marketing. And it, it does, I think, in a way, it captures this, the, the, the essence of, of, of what I think has, has changed in, in recent years, which is, which is that there are more, it, it's twofold. One is that on the, on the sort of agency tactical, or, you know, not just ad agencies, but on the commercial persuasion business sort of tacni- tactical side, is to be more murky from everything from, you know, not just the 30-second ad, but getting the brand into the show. And you're familiar, of course, with the, the many ways in which this is happening right now. And, you know, the one I talk about lately is that Christian Slater show where he, he's a split personality or something, and each personality is represented by a different GM car uh, <laughs> by arrangement with GM. Um, you know, uh, you can't really TiVo past that, so that's a little bit murky. Um, and also, you know, word-of-mouth tactics and then things like, as you, you guys with, at Crispin were uh, uh, innovators with the subservient chicken of, of the marketing that instead of the marketer interrupting you, your friend interrupts you and, and forwards you the, uh, the brand message from, from Burger King or, or whoever it is. But then on the flip side, that, that has nothing to do with the actions of agencies, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is um, the grassroots or sort of young person, you know, untrained in marketing, who just embraces the idea of, a, of brands as legitimate vehicles for, for personal expression. And um, the same kinds of kids who might have started an indie group, you know, an indie rock band 10 years ago or 20 years ago, start up these indie brands now, like the Hundreds and Barking Irons and then all the, the many interesting brands in the DIY handmade world that you can sort of view through through etsy.com and um, they have a lot of motivations but the but one of the interesting things about it is how well they've kind of grasped the broad concept of what brands can be and what brands can do and i i define branding in the in the book as the process of attaching an idea to a thing to a product or Mm. a service and they get that and they're very good at it and um it's an interesting thing to sort of see. You could, you could argue that, like, oh, these kids are re- rejecting mainstream brands. And it's like, right, but they're rejecting them by creating their own brands. And that's kind of a deeper and more interesting um, development. So that's how murky it's gotten, and that's the full breadth, I think, of the murkening idea. So if people want to get in, in touch with you, can they go to that website? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can find there's a, if you go to the fact, there's a way to... Uh, there's a way to reach me. I'm, I'm easily reached. I hear from people all the time. So yep, yep, yep. We're just about you. out of time, but I wanted to just ask, if there's anything that you brought away from, from, from writing this book that maybe you hadn't realized before, good or bad? About uh, writing books or about uh, the marketing business? About writing books in general. <laughs> no, about, about consumer culture and the dialogue between what we buy and who we are and just this whole mass of things that you've been writing about now for quite a while. What, is there any one thing that you bring away from it? Well, I mean, what I bring away from it is, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a funny way, a kind of hopefulness about the idea that this consumer and control idea, which I think is largely a cliche as it's used, that it does, mm-hmm. there is power in it as an idea. We do have, consumers do have power, and the, and the, con, and the decisions that, that we, you and I and everybody makes, they, they do have real consequences, and, and we can, I think, going forward, you know, if we participate, 
make changes to have material culture more represent the things that we wanted to represent in the in the long run. So, Rob, thank you so much. I really appreciate. It. I love talking to you. Well, it's always a pleasure. Um, a- anytime. Okay, I'm going to keep you to that. Anytime. <laughs> so have a wonderful day and keep a lookout for Paula Dean. Okay. I sure will. I'll tell her you said hello. <laughs> Okay, take it easy. Thanks, Rob. All right, take care. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening, and please join me next week for another edition of The Hook. Have a wonderful day.